Hello, I'm Cleana Nianlund, producer of the RT Radio 1 Davis Now Lectures. The Pleasures of Gaelic Literature was a series of Thomas Davis lectures first broadcast on RT Radio in 1975. Its editor was writer John Jordan. The series features writers and writers in the Irish language to which they are drawn. Here from that series is poet Moira Wakathy, or Moira Cruz O'Brien, as she is referred to in the series, with her talk on Thomas O'Crihan, who wrote Antilonach, or The Island Man, as she calls the book in translation. Moira Wakathy says that if there is a particular cast of personality that fits a man for life on an island, it is surely to be learnt here in this book. An inevitable association of ideas makes Antilonach a must for inclusion in any list of those books one would like to have handy on a desert island, for the name in English means the island man. Under that name the book has been translated, perhaps somewhat unevenly, by the late Robin Flower. If there is a particular cast of personality that fits a man for life on an island, it is surely to be learnt here a philosophy that can turn deprivation to positive advantage and make limitations an enhancement of freedom. The very manner in which the book came into being reads like a parable on the theme. The writer was Tomás Crihan, anglicised Crowan, a subsistence fisherman and small farmer who spent all his life in a remote island off the western seaboard of Ireland, the Great Blasket. In his late middle age, he was persuaded to write the story of that life. But how to do this? He was illiterate in the language he had spoken from birth, which was Irish. The language of his meagre schooling was English. English, however, in which he was quite competent. We will find him to be basically a competent individual all round. English belonged to a way of life so other than his own that it was impossible to conceive of it as a medium for any kind of inner communication. To this challenge, Crihan responded, with that combination of an appropriate pride and an appropriate humility, which we come to recognise as the basis of his immense self-respect. Once he had been convinced that such a record would be of any value to a general public, not too easy a task this, incidentally, he said quite simply about learning to write the Irish he had always spoken, and he told his story. Anyone who has ever gone back to school as an adult will appreciate the industry and strength of character this represented. But what of the end product? How did that turn out? I will try to tell you. In Anthalánach, writing has a flavour, a quality of goodness you can almost taste, like the goodness of fresh bread or of a sound apple. It engenders a climate, a climate made up of a profound acceptance of the realities of life, coupled with an intense appreciation of the mere physical joy of living. And all this reduced to its simplest terms. There is hardly a word of natural description as such, but the reader is constantly made to share the limitless sky and sea of the Atlantic coast, the ever-changing light and colour, the intoxication of the clean air, the spring of the turf underfoot, the response of the boat to wind and water. In the opposing scale are hardship, tragedy, heartbreak, hunger, danger, illness and death. They are not glossed over. 
but take their place in a natural order where they can be faced with courage and if not to be overcome, at least born with dignity. To talk to you about this book is almost a desecration. It is to be read and to read it is to live it. We are dealing with a miracle, a miracle of balance, where the objective record is so involved with the personality of the author that on setting down the book, you feel you have come to know the man. And yet talk is what I have to do. Or should I let the man speak for himself? Listening 
we begin to realise that here is a record remarkable not only for the creative contribution of the author, but also in its substance. Let us take the substance first. Life on the Great Blasket in the last half of the last century was a survival probably unique in Europe. It was the survival of a living community only barely touched by the Industrial Revolution. Scholars have argued that the essential ties of family life, which we regard as basic, may be, in effect, only fully realisable in circumstances where the family is an actual, practical unit interdependent on its members for survival. It is such a unit here. The child who grew up in that isolated townland, beleaguered by the everlasting sea, was part and parcel of such a family. All his skills he learnt from his parents and siblings, and from the natural extension of that family group to neighbours and close kin. There is no need to explain to such a child the essential functions of the beloved adult. He will appreciate from the beginning that Daddy and Mammy must be able to turn their hands to many trades. He will do so with an immediacy, which is difficult of attainment for the small person to whom we in towns today try to make clear the vital importance of sitting in an office. A little lad who follows his father afield to hunt, who baits his fishhook for him, whose clothes are tailored by his father, from cloth spun and woven by his mother from the wool of their own sheep. Such a lad has a very healthy respect for his parents as experts, built into his natural affection for them from the moment his young mind begins to take cognizance of individuals at all. His security in his mother's love is tempered early by the realisation of that love's practical advantages and he is never in any doubt about the usefulness of his father's avocations, nor about the inevitability of his own coming to manhood in turn, in a society that actively needs both him and his skills. Similarly, the cooperation between husband and wife is a self-evident necessity, and their affection for each other, their ability to get on with each other, are seen not as romantic emotional impositions, requiring endless artificial support, but as an overt and important factor in making daily life possible. This does not mean that all marriages are happy, all fathers skilled, all mothers amiable, but it does mean that the ideal family sets itself more readily attainable standards than ours are, and that respect and good manners, which in turn entail tolerance and forbearance, are seen as a positive necessity rather than as a desirable luxury. The analogy spreads outwards from the family to the community. The weaker individual is supported by the more strong, and considerable depths of understanding and delicacy of feeling grow naturally out of the practical need to conserve available energies and not to dissipate them in pointless clashes of personality. Much generosity some malice, an all-pervading, mildly astringent humour. Tomás's mother is comely, his father effective and indulgent, and he himself, the youngest of a numerous brood, a loved and dutiful Benjamin. It is an idealised picture, perhaps, but anecdote after anecdote, instinct with truth, 
show it to reflect the reality. As age and calamity take their natural toll, Tomas imperceptibly assumes the role of family provider, but with a subsisting affection and respect for the old couple, never forced or overstated, unobtrusive, utterly ungrudging, never subservient. There are tribes in Africa where a man's father is not clothed in Freudian authority, but is traditionally his best friend. Something of this emerges here, I think, in the following two episodes. One of these shows a boy just come to manhood, still nervous of parental reaction. Let us take it in English this time. I had the turf cut now and was fairly satisfied. My plan was to spend another day in fixing up a good shelter. The day I decided on for this was wild, gusty, dry day, just right for the job I had in hand, and off I went up the hill. When I got there, I stripped to the shirt. I had a pup with me, and I noticed nothing till he had slipped between my legs and ran back under an overhanging flagstone that projected far out with a hollow space beneath it. My pup went so far into the hole under the stone that I couldn't see a trace of him. Well, I'd lost my fine dog. He had a reputable name. Oscar was what we called him. The pup had ruined my day's work for me and put an end at once to all my energy and determination. I managed to see about an inch of the tip of his tail and I realised that he was stuck there. I was in a queer fix then. My new shelter wasn't made yet, my pup was lost, and I was terrified of what my father would say, for he it was who had brought the pub from Dingle, carrying him for eight miles in a basket on his back. I had a big fishing hook in my pocket and a good bit of twine, so I tied it to the handle of the turf spade and thrust it back into the hole as far as I could. The hook stuck into the top of the pup's behind. I dragged him towards me, and out he came easily enough, with a lump of a rabbit in his jaws. When I pulled it out of his mouth, he gave one lap back into the hole again. I was beside myself. I failed to get him out of the hole again, and late in the evening I got home in a pretty bad temper and hung up the rabbit. I expect, said my mother, that it was the pup that caught the rabbit for, oh? It was, said I, and he's left himself for a forfeit. And how did he do that, says she? Did he go over the cliff? I told her the whole story from beginning to end. And he'll stay there for good and all, I told her. Don't mind if he does, she. My father never breathed a word while this talk was going on, and I thought that he was saving it up for me, and that I should hear what he had to say soon enough, for I fancied that he would think that it was by my own carelessness I had lost the pup. But often things turn out differently from what we expect. And so it was with me and my father, for when he did speak, there was good sense in what he had to say. I believe, said he, that Oscar would never have gone back into the hole if he hadn't sent another rabbit there, possibly two or even three of them. There's nothing children like to hear more than a friendly word from a father and a mother. I'd been upset enough when I came down from the hill. The worst thing had been what I expected to hear from them. As it was, they dispersed all my fear, and things remained like that until the morrow. So I was up at break of day. I took a bite or two and drank a cup or so of milk. My mother heard me and asked where I was after so early. Surely you have the whole long day before you. And says she, do you see your father around? No, said I. 
He left his bed a while back, and I fancy he went up the hill. Off I went after him, and once I'd started, I never stopped until I reached the spot. The first thing I saw coming towards me was Oscar, and you'd have thought that he hadn't seen me for half a year. My father was standing on the flagstone. He'd just got Oscar out with five huge rabbits pulled out of the hole along with the pup. My father was cleverer than I was, for he'd made a channel at the end of the stone in the place where he guessed the end of the hole would be. He had five of the finest rabbits that were ever taken out of a single hole. He flung them across his shoulder and went half home. I finished my new turf shatter. The second example is perhaps even more striking. It shows the young man become decision-maker for the household. In those days, our custom was to go early to town on Christmas business. I had carried a good heap of seaweed to the crest of the cliff above the strand and was all set to start carrying it with the good ass I had, for it was a dry, windy day. I looked and saw a young lad coming towards me. I saw at once that he had some business with me. What brought you here, my boy, said I. Your mother sent me to you to see if you would go to Dingle, said he, for the whole village is going there. I thanked him and told him I'd go. He went back home hot-foot. Tell my mother to have my clothes ready for me, and I'll bring you some sweets, said I. I started off after him without much enthusiasm, for all the hindrances were putting me wrong, and I hadn't carried my manure to the field. But since the whole island was going to get ready for Christmas, I said to myself that I'd find it easier to go in their company, for I should have to go alone if I left it till later. When I got to the house, I was as pleased as anything, for I saw the old man had the ass ready. Where's the seaweed back there, said he? The big heap, I answered. You will notice that the son does not find it necessary to recount explicitly how his father has anticipated his preoccupations and has moved unrequested to remove at least one of them. Paradoxically, as we know from the great store of Irish folk song, it is against this background of rationality and moderation in all matters concerning the emotions that frustrated sexual passion often find its most poignant expression. And so it is in the Islandman's story. Passion is there, but relegated firmly to its proper place among the pains and pleasures peculiar to youth. Hereby hangs an odd little tale. There are two editions of the Islandman available in Irish. The first edition is by Anshauk, a younger contemporary of the author's from a similar background. The second is by Tomás's grandson, Padre Gomuilón, very much a man of the Gaeltacht, but very much also an urban Irishman of the present day. There is basically not a great deal to choose between the two versions. Gomuilón's preserves the odd earthy expression and episode that the Shauk felt not fitting to be so set down. The Shauk shows perhaps more finish in arrangement by chapter and paragraph. To my mind, there is only one place in which Omuilon's choice of material adds very definitely to the Shouks. Tomás's first love for a girl who lived on the even lonelier sister island in Ishvikilan is told in both editions almost entirely in terms of songs sung when they met at fair or fireside, songs with names like these, Eredin ni nosin kehi, Reichnock Nadi and Claude Bogdale. 
Bob Nagraev. All of them intensely passionate and basically unhappy songs, as was the fashion. There is some idea that a match might be made between the two young people, but finally the elders decide in favour of another alliance. The decision seems to have been accepted without resentment, and, as always in Thomas's telling of his own affairs, with dignity and as much cheerfulness as circumstances will allow. Now, in the account of the wedding, in the first edition, the Schauks, there is a very odd excision. It is in no way an impropriety. It is almost no more than the name of a song. It is as if all the regrets for what might have been are compressed into that illusion, for the song is one that belongs in the mouth of a girl lamenting her faithless lover. We today would hardly have attached much importance to it, but to the Schauk, who was himself the product of the song culture, its meaning was so clear a betrayal that he felt it could not be allowed to stand. The second editor, Thomas's grandson, has restored it, and very beautifully it finishes the account of an idyll. Enu ran a voin, a dolt thermophosa fein, kishlani nail, non vandov on schliev. I would like to think that the end of my task has become easier since you have heard Thomas speaking for himself. It is generally believed that the native Irish speaker sets a high value on rodomandate. This is markedly untrue. Rather, the opposite is the case. Elegance and sobriety of expression, economy as an aesthetic ideal, are what are most prized in a conversationalist. And here we may find the secret of the book's remarkable literary expertise. Until very recently, in the Irish-speaking districts of this country, conversation was a highly sophisticated art, and Thomas had long been recognised as one of that art's finest practitioners, even before he was persuaded to put pen to paper. Here was a man whose talk had not only style but substance, a precious asset in a community so isolated that it had largely to make its own entertainment, a community within whose narrow confines the bore was a never-present danger. I have never ceased to wonder at the extraordinary power and beauty of the language spoken in the Gaeltachts of Munster. A great literary tradition went into the making of it, and the vicissitudes of history ensured that it never, as happened alas to so many literary traditions, became a medium for the eye only. The other day I heard a complaint from a teacher of music that children are no longer taught to hear. Thomas's Irish is Irish for the informed listener, sonorous, pellucid, erudite, but never merely wordy. It is a great instrument played by a master. The Blasket fiddlers, not so long ago, made their own fiddles from choice pieces of wreck. This instrument is more like an organ in range, but the performance, like the fiddlers, has the individuality of good folk playing. 
That was Irish poet Moira Wakathy and her lecture on writer Thomas O'Crihan from the 1975 RT radio series The Pleasures of Gaelic Literature. Go to the Davis Now Lectures website for more information on rt.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Davis Now Lectures and find further Davis Now Lectures wherever you get your podcasts. From me, producer Cleanan Eanlun, thank you for listening.